Zoe, I'm in grade 12, and I am an ear of East. Hello, my name is Bella, and I'm in grade 12, and I'm an ear of East. Hello, my name is Edwight, I'm in grade 12, and I'm an ear of East. Hello, my name is Fraser, I'm in grade 12, and I'm an ear of East. Hello, my name is Gabby, I'm in grade 11, and I'm an ear of East. Hi, I'm Herbert, I'm a grade 12 student, and I'm an ear of East. You are listening to the Global Politics Podcast, brought to you by the students of UWC-SEA. The college admission scandal arose way back in April 2018 from an unrelated case of security fraud. The defendant admitted to paying $450,000 to soccer coach to admit his daughter into college, and the soccer coach subsequently led the investigation team to William Rick Singer, a college medicine counselor who had revealed as the leader of a large-scale scheme that had allowed parents to bribe their children's way into college. On March 12, 2019, 50 people were charged with the involvement in Singer's scheme or conspiracy to commit mail fraud. Parents made payments through the Key Worldwide Foundation, a nonprofit organization owned by Singer, which helped conceal the nature of the payments instead of misrepresenting them as charitable donations. Singer used two techniques to carry out his scheme. The first included bribing entrance exam administrators to facilitate cheating through fabricating learning disability paperwork that gave students access to special accommodations, having proctors alter ex- exams after they had been taken, having people pose as the student and take their exam. The second technique involved involved bribing coaches and administrators to nominate unqualified applicants by falsely labeling students as athletic recruits, fabricating their curricular profiles using Photoshop, the student's application would be viewed more favorably. The Northrex example of this involved Nori Lulin, a member of the cast of Full House who da- whose daughter was corruptly recruited as the um, rolling athlete. The university with the accused personnel include Georgetown, Harvard, Northwestern, Stanford, Yale, and a number in California. In response to the scandal, the indicted coaches have been fired or suspended. The National College Athletic Association have planned to reveal the violations against them, and individual senators have discussed introducing certain penal measures, such as taxing college with the smallest proportion of low-income students. Moreover, the Hallmark Channel and Netflix have both cut ties with Lori, uh, one of the parents in the scandal, while her daughter Olivia Jade has lost a number of beauty partnerships. Uh, so thank you for the introduction, Kotono. Uh, first of all, on behalf of the Global, uh, Global Politics Podcast, I would like to say big welcome to Bat Tesprad and Robbie Jeffries from the University Advising Center here at UWC East. Uh, because we found it to be extremely interesting to look at it from the perspective of the people who actually try to get our students into the universities that we're trying to uh, that we're applying to. So uh, maybe starting off, uh, a little short introduction to what is what 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 do you do daily, and, and how did you feel when you first heard about the scandal that broke out in in March? Hi, sure, thanks. Uh, my name's Robbie. I have been involved with university admissions for about. Oh, probably 15 years. I started off as a university admissions representative for a short time, um, got uh, my training as a school counselor in the United States, and um, worked at first a school in the U.S. Uh, for several years as a, high, as a, a specific college admissions uh, guidance counselor, essentially, and then moved to Dubai, where I was there for several years, and I've been here at UWC um, for uh, the past five years. 
And my name's Pat. I'm a university advisor here at UWC East. I've also been um, in the university advising game for the last 15 years, starting out in Canada for about six years. And then I moved to Doha, Qatar in the Middle East for seven years, and I've been at UWC East for two years. Um, basically, what Robbie and I do is we we like to think that we take the stress and anxiety out of this college admission process that I think is mired a lot of times in stress and uh, anxiety because of the competitive and selective nature of it. And I think that lends itself into this story and how the people's perceptions and the media and the fact that people are aiming and competing for a thin slice of places at colleges and universities uh, are just heightening the the um, the fraud and in many ways the corruption that goes on and so I think what Robbie and I try and do especially when students are in grades 10 and 11 or ex is expand the scope of students awareness that you don't need to get into the top colleges uh, to be successful in life and in many cases um, it's not correlated that the the ranking of your school will translate into how happy you are in later life and obviously in this story uh, that's what a lot of these parents were thinking that um, it's a prestige thing if my uh, son or daughter gets into a uh, highly selective, highly competitive, well-ranked uh, university. And so I am going to pay a lot of money to make sure that that happens. And I'm really going to compromise the, my family values in order to do that. Yeah, I would agree with all of those things, Pat. I think one thing that really uh, you have to know about is the structural issues that have brought this to a head, and certainly the stress and anxiety related to that, um, preying somewhat on some on some parents' um, fears of not getting into one of these schools and how that might affect their future. And again, I think Pat and I work uh, relentlessly to try and expand people's idea of what a good school is. So people come in and say, I want to go to a good university. Okay, well, define that. What do you mean by good? Is it, if it's highly ranked, who, what's it ranked on? So really, again, thinking more broadly, and, and hopefully, you know, in, in thinking about the, these families, like they would have thought more broadly about where my child can be successful. I think some of the structural things you need to know about is that in the United States, uh, the guidance counselor role that uh, we play here at this school, um, we have about 50 students that we work with in each grade group, and that's a pretty average ratio for a uh, university advisor at a school like ours. If you are in some public schools in the United States, um, the, the ratio could be upwards of 500 students to one counselor. Okay, so what happened was throughout the, the state's funding, uh, these public schools in the United States, they stopped paying money to support counseling staff. The easiest thing to cut first is a librarian and the counselor, right? So all of a sudden, these families were looking for support on how do I send my student to university. They couldn't really go to the guidance counselor because there's 500 students in line trying to get support on everything from graduation requirements to teen pregnancy to all the possible things that could happen in high school. So what emerged from that in the United States is 
a growing trend of hiring outside help. So they're going to hire this, like this, this gentleman who, who's been indicted. They've hired, they, they create these companies and they say, we will help you through the process of university admissions because you're not going to get any help from the school. And that was not only at you know, the, the, the poorest of public schools, but also sort of that medium range of, of wealth gap in the sort of the middle tier of, uh, of income level in the United States. At the, some of these students that are indicted or who are involved uh, were at schools like ours where their ratio for their counselor was like 50 to 1. But these families then thought, well, we need to also pay for this additional help, and we're going to pay even bribes to, to get our, our sons or daughters into these schools. So um, I think one thing that makes it feel more egregious is that um, this straight bribery method of, of getting in and merely manipulating the system with like the sports aspect and the SAT aspect, I think really, because it's so in your face, it's such a direct bribe um, that it really um, has hit home in the United States and the idea of a meritocracy in terms of who gets in and who doesn't. Um, and I think what a lot of people have brought light to is that if you are a wealthy person in the United States, for many, many years, you there's generational wealth where people have been paying their way through the back door, right? If you want to build a library, if you want to um, support our university in an, any number of financial ways, then we will make sure your son or daughter gets in. That's always been sort of the back door of entry. I think what this this case brings it to be a little bit more egregious is the fact that they were it was so direct um, in terms of the bribery through essentially what is a side door um, into these top schools. So I think it's brought a lot of uh, discussion in the United States about I get about who gets in and why, and is this system set up to be a meritocracy or is it really just about pay to play? Um, I have a question for the counselors, which is, you've told us that you try to expand students' scope in terms of schools and look at different schools in the United States, but schools across the world that don't necessarily have that same level of prestige. But considering the scandal that we've seen now, do you actively maybe dissuade students from going for those big schools, knowing that this is such a huge deal in the U.S.? So I don't think we dissuade students from going to the big schools. I mean, we're not, we never say... Uh, don't apply. Um, we want to be realistic with students um, and we are in no ways dream killers um, because a lot of times what students have done is since they were in elementary school they have grown up with these big name schools in their minds. Maybe their parents have talked about it, maybe their parents have said oh I you know so and so a friend of a friend's uh, son or daughter has, uh, is, has gone to a big name school and so you should uh, try and go to that school as well. So when I talk to ninth graders and 10th graders and I say, have you ever thought about a university that you're going to go to? And they always say, probably a school that's in the top 10 ranked in the United States. <clears throat> what invariably happens is we show them characteristics of other schools, um, maybe smaller schools where the community feel is a little more tight than the school that they're looking at. Um, maybe the program that they're interested in is offered at another school in a, a very cool way. Um, and so we expand their kind of repertoire of college, like the, the schools that they might be comfortable with. Um, 
If a student is interested in going to an Ivy League school or a very selective competitive school and they feel that that school will fit them as a learner, I say go for it, it's great. And in many cases, as we saw from this case, it's not really the school's fault that this occurred. Um, there were some shady individuals working for the schools, but in large part, a lot of the admissions people and the institution itself was not aware that these things were going on. I, th I think one thing that's driving the hysteria and one thing that counselors around the world like us have fought against is rankings. Okay, so rankings are built. Uh, there's one particular one called U.S. News and World Report, and they de develop this ranking system. What they do in part of that ranking is they'll go around and they'll say how much um, they'll go interview uh, deans and provosts at various universities and, and they say tell us which places you think are good now these people have never worked at those other institutions uh, they don't really have a real sense of what goes on on that campus but they just kind of rank it themselves so part of the US World uh, News and World Report is based off essentially people's guesses of what they think might be good uh, another piece of that ranking is um, essentially what comes down to is, is, is money, right? How much money does this university have for resources, for research? When it comes down to research, research is a really important thing to happen at a university, but it doesn't always translate to a good undergraduate experience. A lot of research happens at the master's and PhD level. A lot of these universities are ranked by how much research is coming out of that particular university. So if you have a university that has a lot of resources aimed at master's and PhD level and those people are publishing like crazy, that ranking would go up. But how does that impact the student's experience on the undergraduate level? Well, maybe not much. So we encourage students when they're looking at rankings uh, to understand how that ranking is built and then understand how that might affect the undergraduate experience. So. Uh, a lot of times we have families who come in and say we want something that's ranked in the top 50 and say well you have to look and see what's in that ranking and then understand again what what that means as a student there's been a big push from counselors around the world again to, to get rid of rankings right like it's it's like saying telling us which hospital is the best is it the one that has the healthiest uh, clients or the sickest right um, what universities rank and I, and I tell students build your own rankings what's important for you you put the what if it is employability then you should put that at the top of your ranking is it community uh, low, uh, the, or is it the the cost of the education is it the diversity on campus make your own rankings and then make your decision based on those rankings don't let some um, you know stuffy guys in an office somewhere decide which is the best place for you really choosing a university is like is like choosing why did you choose UWC, right? You chose it because maybe because of the core values, the 16 to 1 student ratio. Um, what are those things? What are the values that you want to see in the university that you're going to attend? So um, I think a lot of the hysteria, again, built especially around this case, is have to go to this elite place because that's going to be my ticket to the future. Um, and, and a lot of that's based on rankings, which are, which are fundamentally um, uh, false. So go, kind of drawing back to the admission scandal, you, uh, Robbie, you mentioned something earlier about the side door and the back door. And actually, um, with the back door, that's the more common form of bribery. And it's very, it's very open that people do this. And we all know that people do this. But does that make it right? Basically, Gabby, what you're, what you're asking, uh, asking Pat and Robbie here is that do you think it's justifiable for universities to accept students based on the financial contributions of their parents? Because 
if you some 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 way think of it is what is the purpose of a university and then how do we keep a university effective and keep it running is that the universities need money uh, if a parent is able to contribute huge amounts millions of dollars to the school then to be honest taking in one student doesn't seem like that bad of a trade-off and doesn't seem that blatantly false but I think in the big scheme of things it still connects to the way money shows privilege and is able to provide you with I wouldn't say capacity but uh, opportunity to step into these institutions that thousands of other other students want to step into so what are your thoughts about that so I think that the way people justify the back door or the donations, the heavy alumni endowment, the building a building on the campus is that my money is going to help other students. If I am a family that can afford to build the wing of a library, ultimately my money is going to help other students and that institution. The institution, which essentially is a business, is saying, we are going to take that money um, and we are going to use it to better our product. Oh, and by the way, your son is coming in and we will accept your son and we will educate your son for four years, but your, the wing of your library will stand for a long, long time. So I think that's the way um, that donations and development cases are justified. Where the scandal contradicts that is these were very selfish families not benefiting the school in any way, but really um, getting their sons and daughters into the school with no real tangible benefits for uh, the school that they were declaring. So, guys, what are your opinions about the scandal? How do you feel about it? Because uh, as I see around this table, we've had, we have five people who have gone just through this admission process and we have two great years, Ella and, uh, uh, and Gabby, who are, who are going through the process right now in selecting universities. So this is very actual for you. Some of us have already received our offers here and uh, some, well, I, I personally feel just ex- extremely disgusted by the fact that this is just plainly happening like, right, right in front of our eyes. And uh, I'm pretty sure with all, of, all the times when these kinds of scandals come up, there's... Uh, people speculate on how much it actually is latent. So we just probably saw a fracture of what's actually existing inside the university system. And the reality is much more grimmer and actually paints a much more stark picture about how, how, how much opportunity do we really have. So just from a personal standpoint, um, I'm extremely privileged in the sense that I had opportunity to come here and I have this extremely like wonderful resource. This, this, is what, this is one of the things that I was like most moved about was that how much effort you have people putting in, you have people working basically in order to get you into university. Of course you have steps you have to do it yourself, but basically you have a person who's constantly keeping you a check to trying to keep you, get you into university. Something like that never existed back in Estonia. We didn't even have a, to be honest, we didn't have a career or a university counselor. So this opportunity is absolutely amazing and I would have never considered applying to the States with, without being here. Of course, there's the question of the fact that we have huge endowments that uh, help uh, uh, certain people get into certain universities and that is extremely helpful. But still, there are a lot of opportunities out there. And I think uh, this makes 
if if people were already kind of doubting if to if to apply, then this is this kind of scandal is just making things ten times worse. Especially if you feel like you have a certain moral code that that is being fractured by by this kind of a negative news. Um, I'm going to talk about a more specific part of the admissions process, and that's the SAT. And so the SAT is a form of standardized testing that you need to do to get into uni- U.S. universities. And um, so I recently took that, and what worried me the most about it was the fact that after this came out, and I started to see that how many parents were bribing people to change the scores or to change the test answers so that their scores were lifted, that doesn't just affect the pool of applicants that they're applying with, that affects everyone in the world who takes the SAT because the curve goes up when these students bribe people to take the exam to take the test and then get higher scores. So that really that really influences people who don't have the same access to these things. And another thing that um worries me and that we were talking about last week when we had this discussion about this podcast was um the kind of the access to prep courses for SATs, for exams, for IB, for anything because a lot some students have much more access to all of these prep courses than uh, other students do. And at this school, we're very fortunate to have um, is a prep course that's run through the school. But at a lot of schools around the world, they don't have the same access. So it disadvantages international students, as well as students within the US, who their schools don't run SAT prep courses. So there's a huge kind of disparity in SAT scores. And that's what, that to me, that's what's most worrying because colleges judge a lot out of this like four digit, four digit score and they take a lot out of that and it may even be the determining factor in your application. For me, um, the the example you gave of the uh, SAT and how privileged people are able to use their wealth to prepare more for the uh, SAT, that's just one example, uh, I think, of, I guess, the legal sort of gray area surrounding how wealthy people all around the world, and I think uh, to an extent this, this includes us in Singapore, being able to, uh, having the privilege of going to a school like this and having the resources that we have to prepare for the college admissions process, whether that is something that is fair. Because on one hand, we can all definitively say that it's unfair, the kind of blatant bribery that occurs. But is something like uh, how we're able to easily, uh, how we're able to more easily go for these prep courses, how we have uh, access to private uh, counselors able to uh, help us if uh, we feel that our, our school counselors are, are not enough, if how we're able to get, how we're able to easily start organizations in school where someone in a public school in the U.S. may not have that, those same opportunities. Does that really mask who you are as an applicant and sort of uh, add this false veneer onto you? And is that really fair, that privilege, even if it does not directly alter uh, who you are as an applicant, it allows you to embellish yourself in a way that probably isn't authentic because other people don't have access to that same opportunity? I think talking about opportunities like disparity, adding on to you too, um, I read an article about how that, like US has like this ideal of American dream, like how everyone can achieve anything if there's an education. And I think this scandal like really reveals, especially to those like, you know, like hopeful students who are genuinely trying hard to achieve better because it's, a lot of people say how education leads to a better opportunity, to like a better, you know, to further your uh, opportunities in the future to achieve whatever you want to do. And this like disparity between the upper class and I guess lower like working class just really represents how it like crushes like students' dream. Um, kind of like not prove the fact that 
um, hard work leads to success at the end, which is like really um, like disappointing in my opinion. Um, I also want to like shed some light on the the disparity issue doesn't just go over college application cheating, but just in general how the whole college system works when it comes to quotas and just the fact that colleges nowadays in the U.S. are so much more expensive than they used to be. And I guess vaguely it does relate to the whole issue of capitalism in general and the kinds of advantages that it gives you, not just in college, but in terms of your career. And we're constantly like uncovering flaws in systems throughout the world. And if if you guys as counselors have noticed any kind of pushback against that or any developments over the years against not just the U.S., but general college admission issues um, across the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh there, if you're looking toward more broadly around the world, uh, you know, even people in our office, Joan Liu has been an absolute champion in helping students around the world. You know, one of the ways that she uh, has worked on access is finding counselors out there in the world that are working with high achieving, low income students from different different countries and getting them to our summer conference where we work with uh, you know lots of universities and all the counselors get together and it provides a huge professional development opportunity for those counselors who wouldn't have access so for from Joan's perspective she's saying I can get more bang for my buck if I go and, and I educate those counselors who can reach out to students so using the counselors as a catalyst for access and inclusion um, I think it also kind of shapes around in different parts of the world, they have different measures of, of merit, right? And so, and there, there are some countries in the world that would say, we're going to base all our decisions on your IB score and absolutely nothing else. And those with the best IB scores can get in. In the UK, for example, they say, if you have this many points or this many A-levels, then you can come to our university. So it's very much a, a meritocracy. And if you can get those grades and you're taking the same exam and A-levels at the public school as you are at the private school, then you're providing a system where it's very clear cut in terms of who gets in and who doesn't. And is that fair? Well, if you're coming from a school that has very low resources, then no, that's not fair. But maybe we as an admissions people will say, well, we're going to dip for certain students, I think Bristol even advertises on their website, it says for certain students from certain counties or certain areas that have low, low income and low, or lower thresholds, then we're going to dip and take those students. Um, it, I think looking across the world, most places you'll find are going to be, they're trying to be merit-based, right? And saying, if you can get these scores, then, then you can go to, to, to higher education. Um, I think in terms of access, it's hard, you know, uh, education is expensive. And as Pat noted earlier, a lot of these places are operating as a business. Um, and I, I think uh, that's a challenge for international students around the world is that, yeah, I might be the smartest kid in my school, and I mean, but I might not have access to higher education because it's simply not affordable or it's not available in my home country um, or I want to look overseas for, for more opportunities. And there are a lot of universities around the world that will um, – that will sponsor students uh, to, to come to their universities. Um, the U.S., for all of its uh, negatives that we're just hearing about and, and, and the way that they, they design their admission system is, uh, is the fact that the U.S. is the most generous for low-income students around the world, and they're the most, the most willing to provide scholarships to students. Um, and so it, it works in both ways, right? Maybe that guy who donated the, 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 the library, well, he's also donating money for scholarships to bring in those low-income students. So, um, again, the criticism for the U.S., they are probably the most generous country around the world for low-income, uh, high-achieving students uh, for internationally. 
I also think that you have to look at the, the philosophy of the higher education systems in the different countries. Um, for example, countries like Australia, Canada, Netherlands, their philosophy is we are going to give as many students as possible the shot at experiencing university. Once the kids are here, we're going to make it very tough for them to stay here, but really we're going to try and make it as accessible as possible for the most students possible. And so the level of com competition and selectivity to get a spot into those schools might not be as tough as a lot of the schools in the United States, but the quality of education is excellent um, and the students really have to work hard for their degrees. So what we do in our office, because we're so international focused, internationally focused, is we try to introduce students to the concept of applying to multiple countries so that they can actually take advantage of systems that are accessible to students. Yeah, I guess that goes along to the social fabric of the country as well as in, say, Canada or Holland. They want to open the door to as many people as possible. And so their entry requirements might be much more reasonable, let's say 30, 30 IB points. Recognizing that 30 IB points is probably much higher um, academic level than what the domestic students might be doing. Um, and it all has to do with access and, you know, getting as many Canadians into the Canadian universities as, as possible. They might not, they might not all finish and half of your dormitory might not be there in, in the second year, but they've all been given a shot, right? And I think that reflects a different viewpoint on what higher education should be or, or, or what it can be for, for a country in terms of developing its, its people. Um, and so I think you know, a lot of students say, well, it only takes 30 points to get there. That means it's going to be easy. Well, that's absolutely not true. Um, and we see students working very, very hard at those places. But it has it's a different. All of those students, not all of those students, will finish. Whereas in the United States, you might, or in, even in the UK, you set the bar for entry very, very high. All of those students finish. No one drops out after the first year. So it's a, it's sort of a different methodology and um, a, a different viewpoint on what higher education should be or could be for a country. I would say places like Canada, Australia, and Holland, they're opening. They're keeping a wide open door for international students. And those students want to stay and work. So you're bringing in smart people who want to stay and work in your country and you want to start up a business and do all those things. Well, that, that can really provide economic development um, in a lot of different ways. So it's smart thinking, in my view, from, there, from, from them. Yeah, uh, just, just to conclude, because we really have to stop wrapping up. Uh, just, just one point that I, that I came to think of, and uh, I think it's true also what Robbie said about even if you have this low, a little bit lower... Um, levels of not levels of acceptance but lower barriers uh, to entry uh, students still have to work and even in these great universities that are known for academic hardship if students are accepted based on the fact the size of the wallet of their parents doesn't mean they're going to succeed in the university simply because they still need to do the same work that people who on merit got in so and we see a lot uh, a lot of the people, even if you follow forums like College Confidential, uh, people actually comment on how they're really struggling inside certain universities, although they've been very high achieving and it really comes as a blow. So I think there's some kind of a karma, uh, karma effect happening somewhere in the universe that's trying to kind of keep things in bay. So um, 
I really want to thank Pat and I really want to thank Robbie. Uh, Pat and Robbie actually produced their own UAC podcast, which we'll put a link in the description of the podcast, as well as we'll add some certain articles and a very interesting uh, free podcast series by Malcolm Gladwell. It's talking about the same issue. Uh, and uh, I really hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, everybody.